안녕하십니까, 여러분. Hello, friends. My name is Kurt Esslinger. I work with the National Council of Churches in Korea, and you're listening to The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation in America. I'm Robin Renee, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. And I'm Wendy Sheridan. Welcome to episode 141. In today's show, we continue our discussion with Kurt Esslinger about war, peace, and the nature of the conflict in South Korea. But before that, I'm going to help Wendy understand the nearly infinite spectra that are music genres. (laughs) Yeah, I need help with that. As always... You can catch a new episode of The Leftscape every other Wednesday. Please subscribe to the show on our website, leftscape.com, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're on our site, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout. That's right. And I know you know this too, but please do follow us on social media at Leftscape. We're there on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we always, you know, like to hear from you. So let's uh, keep the conversation going. And please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can join us at any level starting at just $1 a month. All Patreon supporters have access to our exclusive segment, We Should Be Recording This. And if you are able, you can increase your contribution and receive other gifts and opportunities. Check us out at patreon.com slash leftscape. Our most recent We Should Be Recording This segment has not been posted yet because I've had uh, some personal issues because my my oldest cat died last Tuesday and she had been sick before that. And that's why the Patreon post is late. I am hoping to get it posted this week. And it is entitled Popular Slut Club. So <laughs> you can look forward to that. It was a great conversation, and uh, when it gets when it gets posted, it'll it'll be there, and you know it'll be fine. But I'm really sorry about Pansy. She was yeah. a good good kitty cat. She was the sure. best. She was a great cat, and the household is not the same since she's died, and the other cats are still looking for her, and we have been distracting ourselves with huge amounts of physical labor so we're too exhausted to feel anything so yeah it's it it's not fun but no. that's when you get pets that's kind of your your unless it's a a parrot or a tortoise a tortoise i was going to say yeah unless it's a parrot or a tortoise you're basically setting yourself up for grief at some point because you're going to outlive your pets yeah. so but nature they, of things yeah anyway anyway i don't know how to make this segue into anything <laughs> but i did have a rewind from last show talking about 
Tucker Carlson. And I think we thought at the time that he was going to be on Newsmax, but then I, I heard later that he, they, you know, they were making offers. They even wanted him to like, not oh. only have a show, but like take basically run everything there, but he did not that you know officially at any rate by, by by the time of this recording but what it sounds like the most promising thing that he sounds like he's leaning toward is to have a version of his show on twitter how so, does that work i am not sure i mean i i mean it i don't know <laughs> i mean is i could understand host... youtube or something but i guess it's i mean you, there are ways that people do longer form things on twitter and, oh. and of course now that it's changing and i it's i might it I may have changed hands i don't know there's a lot going on at twitter no i don't know yeah it, but i heard that that elon musk is hiring a replacement ceo yes i'm sure there's much rejoicing in the <laughs> in the remaining employees of that company right right Aye. but um but i don't know i mean i think whatever happens though that having your show on Twitter, it's a, well, a couple things. And, and one commentary that I heard about it is that, first of all, his audience is not nearly going to be as big. And it also will not be nearly as friendly because Twitter does not play, <laughs> does not suffer fools sometimes. <laughs> so like anything wow. that he says on there is going to, he's going to get feedback. Whereas you oh, did, didn't necessarily get feedback on Fox ever. So let's hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, interesting. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm barely on Twitter at all, but, and that actually isn't, isn't an encouragement for me to get on there. No, <laughs> it's not, it's, uh, it's probably, it's got problems, but yeah, I check, I check things on there, but I don't stay because it is pretty caustic a lot of the time. Yeah. Anyway, all right. that's not news. Well, well, we're, no. well, we're not even at news, we're facts. So, so yeah, we're, we're going to do the, we're going to do the random facts in the news right now. All right. <laughs> Well, I'm going to start educating Wendy with my first random fact. And that is that Witch House is a microgenre of electronic music characterized by dark occult themes and visual aesthetics that emerged in the late 2000s and early 2010s. The style is heavily influenced by chopped and screwed hip hop, as well as industrial music, ethereal wave, and dream pop. Well, if I knew what any of those words meant. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> Wendy's thinking, those were words. <laughs> yes, those were words. And I know there are meanings in another context, but I cannot, I cannot imagine what that sound would be. So, yes. And my fact, I'm going to just ignore this now until, okay. until we talk about it again. My fact today is brunch was invented as a way of curing hangovers. This meal would be enjoyed as a late breakfast that leans towards fatty foods. And this came from the belief that alcohol causes cravings for greasy food to increase. So. And my, my hangover cure is a, is a grilled cheese sandwich. So that might be, there might be something to it. <laughs> That's what I always want. If I, if I. Oh, well, now yeah. I'm not even hungover, but I, now I want a grilled cheese sandwich because I haven't <laughs> had one of those in a really long time because it has cheese 
Yeah. And 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 it's grilled so with butter. So there's butter around it somewhere. <laughs> Two things I really I have had to cut out of my diet and I'm now I'm craving it. And bread. So everything that makes up a grilled cheese sandwich is stuff I'm not allowed to eat. So I really want one now. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. Mm. Now it's time for all of the news we can handle. This first piece is Turkish President Erdogan and, cha and challenger Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu appear headed to a runoff in this country's presidential race after neither secured a majority of votes in yesterday's election. I'm assuming yesterday was Saturday. <laughs> Current results have Erdogan at 45.9% of the vote and Kalushtadam with 44.8%. Wow. Erdogan faces st stiff headwinds during his re-election campaign. Opposition parties united behind a single candidate, a long-running economic crisis that saw inflation peak above 80% in the fall, and a pair of recent earthquakes that left 50,000 people dead, a death toll many blamed on government corruption. If the results are confirmed, the runoff is going to be held on May 28th. So that is very interesting. That is um, going to be interesting. Yeah, I, Erdogan is... Is authoritarian. Yeah, very, much very so. yeah, it was very intense. So who's, well, that's an interesting one. I, I haven't yeah. heard about this. So. It would be nice to see, it would be nice to see other countries turning away from authoritarianism. And then hopefully we will also do that at some point. Yeah, that would be a good <laughs> you know? plan for sure. <laughs> <sighs> well, I mean, so my news is really like the Trump roundup of, of legal <laughs> bullshit so <laughs> the I trump mean, fishing net hauling in all of the all, all of these little fish that are all his little lawsuits right right exactly <laughs> so i mean the big thing and that, you know everyone's been talking about this of course is that the e Jean carroll's civil case was decided and he was deemed responsible for sexual assault and battery and uh defamation and five million dollars. And five, yes, and five million dollars is the the remedy for that, according to the court. And it's, you know, whether he ever pays money <laughs> is another story, <laughs> which he doesn't tend to do in general. But you well, know, I hope he's forced. I hope he's forced to fork over that cash you to, would, to them. You would to hope her so. and, and his her legal team. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it was just important to have her voice heard and you know it was a situation where it was past the statute of limitations statute of limitations for a, a legal case it criminal case those, you mean. Cr sorry criminal case but it was one of those things where in the time period she just wasn't in fact one of her friends said like you can't go after donald trump like it's not one friend said you maybe should tell another said just don't even try you know and then it was right. like one of those things where a lot of people just didn't speak up at all well, it's also it sort of it's also wind behind saying yes. t telling these stories, you know. But also, New York State passed a law. I within the last five years, it's fairly right. recent, where they remove the statute of limitations for a lot of sexual, specifically sexual abuse cases, and I think, I think 
it was stuff going on in the Catholic Church that prompted them to right. do this. But the deadline to file anything is running out. I think that runs out this year, and then that window is closing. And I think that also prompted Ms. Carroll to to do this now, mm-hmm. as opposed to at another time. Because she couldn't do it before, and now she had this opportunity where she could do it, and that opportunity is is limited. And I and I believe I am not completely sure, but I believe that the New York statute that is allowing people to bring up these old cases is going to expire this year. Yeah. Yeah. So it is good to get these stories out, and even yes. if it's not, you know, he's not going to prison or there's there's none none of that at least not for this particular situation but it's but it's the truth being told and it's actually prompted other people to speak up even like from during the time of the presidency of his presidency Mm. speaking up about things that happened to them uh, which is i don't know why it shouldn't be shocking or surprising at all but those you know it's it's it still is somehow (laughs) i don't know (laughs) So the next bit of of this news is that the wire fraud investigation that special counsel Jack Smith is looking into is starting to heat up. And really, it's about whether or not Trump and his allies raised money, basically committed federal wire fraud by trying to raise money and raising money. They raised like a $250 million through a political action committee by saying that they need money to fight to reverse the election fraud. And huh. did they know, did he have ample reason to absolutely know that that was not true at the time that that was happening? It's basically the-, the Oh, they they, uh, they did. They did know. Of you, course they uh, knew. Of course, you know. But I think in but, the court of law, they have to look through, you know, yeah, evidence I mean, of when like, he was told and how, who told him and, you know, all these things. And we know that he got that message, so. He we knows, but happens. we have to be able to prove it right. to the to the degree that the courts require, which may be difficult. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And in Fulton County, Georgia, the charges are going to be announced in the summer in regard to the election tampering issue. That's the grand jury that's been impaneled for months and months and months, right? Yes, exactly. And the district attorney is Fannie Willis. And she is going to basically, uh, she wrote a letter, like a formal announcement letter saying that charges will be possible between July 11th and September 1st. And kind of implied like you should be ready for this event. So it's probably (laughs) not going to be a lesser person, you know, she's uh-huh. not saying anything literal, but if, if she thinks that law enforcement and people need to be aware of the time frame of this, you know, being. Oh, because uh, of rioting and there, bullshit? Yeah. Like, I think it's the, the implication is that, you know, there could be trouble. So be aware that oh. when this is happening. But like the, the window of time is pretty big. It's like basically all half of the summer so we're not we still don't know exactly when it's going to be but that's coming and so oh poor 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 mr trump is going to have to worry all summer long that something's (laughs) going to happen so he can't relax i really feel bad for him (laughs) not the slightly bit not 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 the slightest bit sarcastic that was no not the slightest bit (laughs) 
Anyway, that's all of my Trump roundup for now. There's more, but that's all I that's There's all the Trump more. I can handle. <laughs> In other in other things happening in the world, the North Carolina governor, Roy Cooper, who is a Democrat, vetoed the bill banning most abortions after 12 weeks, which is eight weeks earlier than the current state law. This sets up the first potential veto override by the state's Republican supermajority, which is kind of concerning. Governor Cooper was quoted as saying, if just one Republican in either the House or the Senate keeps a campaign promise to protect women's reproductive health, we can stop this ban. So I'm not sure when, you know, how their process works, that when when the veto is official, like how long it takes to go back to the state legislature and then what they're going to do about it. But if you are a North Carolinian and you're listening to this podcast, bug your state representatives to not to override the veto. So, because, mm-hmm. you know, 12 weeks, I mean, 12 weeks is longer than six weeks, but that's not enough time. No. And my final news piece, and we have a little bit of something else after this, is, and, and this is a Swedish singer, Loreen, won her second Eurovision title for the song Tattoo during Saturday night's finale in Liverpool, United Kingdom in the 67th edition of one of the most highly watched live music performances in the world. And with this win, the 39-year-old Doreen became the second artist and first woman ever to win the contest twice. And we will have a link to her song that won her that title on our website. It's It's pretty good. It nice. definitely feels like Swedish pop music. So, <laughs> well, but the woman has some pipes. I will say that she's very, very good singer. Cool. I, I have not heard it yet, so I'm looking forward to listening to it. So I don't know. I shouldn't have saved this comment for the last of our <laughs> news, probably. But I just want to acknowledge that I've not been including all of the shootings and and police issues and strangulations on subways and it's just I'm I'm very aware of all of these things and I'm really feeling for you know everybody who's died or who's been affected by these things lately it's just like a mass shooting every day it seems and it's it literally is more news than I can handle I tend to avoid I definitely avoid videos of it all but oh yes I've, I've been avoiding kind of really grokking a lot of this lately and i just i don't know it's self-preservation so i want Indeed. to just yes. you know just know that i know and yes we we know but we're not necessarily shoving it in your face because yeah. it's more than this is all the news we can handle literally <laughs> yes yes and and that concludes all the news we can handle today <laughs> Are you out of your book of mind? I know that. I am So welcome to the Geekscape. This is the segment where we talk about something that one of us is geeking out about and um 
you know, something that we get really into the minutiae about. And so for me, right. I and, love, and, what's that? And this season, and this season, it's about one of us is geeking out about it and the other one is pretty clueless. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there was a whole podcast about that. I can't remember the name of it, but they would alternate where one uh, was really into something and they would like teach it to the other person. Cool. It was very cool. Yeah. And they did Steely Dan. That's why I know about it. I was like, that's so cool. <laughs> but yeah, so I was talking, I think this started out where I was talking about having done a playlist for my show that I do on Discord um, and it focused on Sophistapop. And you were like, <laughs> Sophistapop, that's a genre? <laughs> I'm still like that. Sophistapop, that's a genre. <laughs> and it just made me think about how much I love sort of diving into the minutia of music and, and getting to know how certain sounds beget other sounds and things like that. And so, yes. So I, I am, I, I, I would like to think I am also interested in that, but as I was trying to explain to you before my, my tax, my mental taxonomy for music is is pretty analogous to you know the the m tiny box of Crayola crayons that only gives you like six or seven or eight colors. <laughs> you know, I know, I know. There's classical, there's jazz, there's rock, there's metal, there's punk, and and that, okay, that's five. And maybe I could figure out two more, but I don't really know. Oh, and rap. Okay, or or uh, hip hop, I guess now. But okay, so I can maybe figure out six or seven, okay. and that's very much it. Right. Yeah. So what <laughs> happens is like those major genres. You know, people start to explore and experiment, and other cultures come in and influence them, and things like that. And then you wind up with sometimes they are subgenres that are big enough that people talk about, you know, pretty widely. And other times it's like micro genres where it's like something really very specific. Yeah. Like there's a lot, there's a whole lot in electronic dance music that is so minute that I, I don't understand it. Like I really seek to kind of keep listening and learning more about it, but it's tough to, for me to discern some of it. But okay. Um, I, I, I want, I now want to have like, I, I'm sure this exists somewhere. Is there, like the a music family tree that you know i mean because edm or electronic dance music i mean i've heard of that mm -hmm. <laughs> and i've actually listened to some of it is that what is its parent taxonomy um, sure well I, I have behind me which you can't oh. see is a whole diagram of electronic music okay and it's amazing and so i mean if you really think about where electronics came from. I mean, you have, you know, Robert Moog inventing synthesizer stuff, and you've got Leon Theremin inventing the theremin, you know, things like that. You go back there, and then eventually you get to, like, one of my favorite bands ever is Kraftwerk. Okay. You know, so they did this sort of minimalist electronic sound in, in Germany in the 70s, is where they, when they started. And so many people sampled Kraftwerk. It's like mm -hmm. an explosion of, I mean, sampled and, and, and took influence from. So like so much of early hip hop, like significant early hip hop took samples from them. Other people started listening and creating other things. So when, you know, I, I, I don't know EDM enough to say like what the direct parent is, but it certainly 
there was electronic music from Kraftwerk. And then you get into, if you look at sort of the beginnings of electronic dance, you've got like Giorgio Moroder, who did a lot of Euro disco, Euro dance music. So like that okay. sound that Donna Summer had, where it's like danceable, but it's it's more on the electronic end than some of the other disco of that time. So they're using more electronic drums. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm remembering from the disco era. There was, it, it was like that one drum. It's like certain technology, like, and I forget the, what it was. It was an electronic drum machine that was released and a whole bunch of artists were using There's it. There's the 808, I think. Yeah, that's it. The yeah. 808. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and there was I, there's another one I'm blanking on the name of, right? Right, yeah. So there was there were bands that kept live drums as very significant, and then there were bands that sort of got more mechanized in in that aspect in terms of dance music. So EDM is typically faster than that. So beats per minute started to increase. Industrial music happened around the same time, so some of it might have some harsher sounds in it than right. The, you know the yes. dance music you think of at the time so that sort of is a is a collision but because i don't know it that well it's hard for me to describe it exactly <laughs> but that's certainly the sort of pathway okay it's it started to take you know so it's very cool and then yeah and then when you get into it there's very very minute genres in terms of beats per minute and whether right. it's bass he heavy or whether it's a breakdown and all kinds of things like that so did you want me to explain Sophistapop? <laughs> or yes, you... please. Please explain Sophistapop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let me see if I can explain Sophistapop. And the thing that I was finding interesting about it was it's, I feel like it's a cousin of Yacht Rock. So that's what I was sort of okay. thinking about at the time. So if you think about New Wave and punk well punk first i guess you could say you know it was a sort of edgy guitar heavy music of the of the mid 70s you know into the list into the later 70s and then new wave started to grow out of that and that was a little bit more pop friendly in some senses a little often a little more melodic and started to bring in early new wave was very guitar-y and then it started to bring in the, the keyboardy sound. So when you get to like whip it's Devo, it's like a very typical, <laughs> understandable new wave side of a song, you know, that kind of thing. So it had that synth sound going on. Okay, so that was happening. And then let me think, how do I explain this? Right. So that was happening in the in the in the UK and everywhere, but off you know, a lot of new wave is from is is British and a lot in the United States as well and you know everywhere, but that's a a a, a big chunk of what we think about is is from there. So then yacht rock <laughs> was or or rock music basically in general, you know, it's like it's very typically based on guitar you know that four four unit with the with live drums sort of sound, and then as yacht rock started to develop in the late seventies into the eighties, it was like sort of merged into R and B and very high production qualities. You know, so it became smooth. It's very smooth music with high production mm -hmm. qualities and and certain certain lyrical 
topics and things like that. So that was happening in the U.S. It's a California kind of a development. Right. I just want to I just want to interject for a second because you did because you're now you're talking about production values and and my understanding of punk is it's very raw, very garagey kind of immediate without you know they're just recording the them and they're not doing a lot of processing afterwards there's not a lot of effects on the instruments right exactly so that's one of the sort of developments as that started to merge into new wave new wave is sometimes very raw but can also get into smoother places you know so that's sort Mm -hmm. of how that how that developed and also like later when you get to pop punk pop punk is can be very produced too you know right so that's a later thing but so yeah so then you had new waves sort of emerging and then as it that developed and kept morphing and morphing you got a very kind of smooth sound that was using the keyboards but just got a lot sweeter and and sophisticated also with that very high production quality kind of thing Okay. And so that sort of aspect of new wave that branched out into that direction wound up being called Sophistapop. And that is very specifically British. So it's kind of like you have this very kind of blues-based rock in the United States merging into R&B and smooth sounds, which became yacht rock. And then you have the lesser blues-oriented, edgy rock of new wave in England, merging into that, some R and B okay. and sophisticated productions, and that became Sophistapop. So it's kind of like cousins in a way, you right? Know, different, different, very different types of rock coming into some similar influences and becoming different new, new different <laughs> genres. It's very, it's exciting to kind of think about it's, how that happens. It's like it's like when you're looking at a parallel evolution in like finches yes that's exactly what it is and you know and i i love biology too so maybe that's part of what's exciting about it so i don't know are there other genres you are curious about that i might i'm have... curious about everything but I, I and i can't even remember i mean i just did an album cover for my daughter's boyfriend's project his band and mm-hmm. he wanted a very surreal 70s I mean, he art directed me. He had very specific vision of what he wanted this to look like. And he did tell me what genre this music was because it was really funny because I gave when I when I first was doing like sketches, I did these little tiny color sketches. So to see what what kind of colors you wanted. And and it was like like the one that was like mostly like had like a purple filter over it if you could if you could kind of think of that he says oh this is this one is too emo and this one is you know he was like like telling me what genres all of these colors were and 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 it was like i have no idea what you're talking about you know but he he knew you know and so he picked the ones that that he thought represented his his style the most Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know and i cannot I can't define what genre he is, you know, I mean, I hear it, I hear, you know, it's definitely rock based, but he had, you know, he has, you know, it's a lot of guitar and drums and bass, but then there's, I think there's saxophone in a couple of cuts and there's trumpet in a couple of cuts and, you know, and, and other instruments that will make an appearance in a song and, and these genres are mostly music based or does the lyrics also play a role in deciding what genre 
something is? Uh, I think lyrics can play a role for sure. Okay. Yeah. Because certain certain genres will sort of typically have a particular kind of attitude attached to it, you okay. know. And and you can always you can always break type, you know. But there's a tendency, like like death metal isn't going to have like sweet loving lyrics attached. You know what I mean? <laughs> you typically. Well, I, people are doing that ironically. Well, yeah. I mean, there was well the like the the death metal cooking videos. <laughs> Oh, those where, are where he's like screaming the recipe at you and, yeah. and those i find hilarious i love so... those actually those were great they were good vegetarian <laughs> recipes too <laughs> but yeah but sometimes the that will sometimes that will help define a, a genre you know one of the, I, one of the things i think we part of what we were talking about too was my curiosity about why i love punk and i'm not so crazy about a lot of metal Okay. You know, and what the differences are between those. And I think you were saying that the guitar is produced differently sometimes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah. That's that's one thing. I think the vocals are different. Like the there's a kind like that it might be both be scream singing, but like a hardcore band is yell screaming and like a a metal band would be more like uh, either like a high vocal high like a, a loud high singing vocal or like the cookie monster voice that's another one yeah yeah that it, it the one the the and I, I think screamo is another genre yeah is that a metal or is that punk or is that neither or <laughs> i think of it more in terms of metal Okay. I mean, there wrong. were some that that it it seems that the vocalist is really injuring themselves when they're like I can't. Yeah, I wouldn't want to someone that singing vocal. like that for like thirty, forty years. I can't. You know that that by the end of it, they're you know they're not going to have a voice left. Yeah, it, yeah. it feels to me, and that could be because if I'm trying to imitate that sound, I know I'm injuring my voice when I'm doing that. So. Right. You know, I'm really impressed with people that can actually sing that way and sustain it for a career. You know, oh, and I, I don't know if I should probably not talk about Bonnie Raitt just winning a Grammy last night. <laughs> Why? But she, I don't know. I, I, mean, I We don't I, know I, when this is going to come out, but it you might be. Yeah, I know. Related, I know. I know. What, yeah. what, so, yes, this is, this is, uh, the Grammys were last night. It's Monday morning on February 6th, and there was a headline is the, all of these pop stars were overlooked for unknown blues singer and it's this picture of bonnie Raitt, and i go <laughs> i just got really pissed off at the headline so well that's funny but, i mean that was a joke right <laughs> i don't know it may have been a joke it was uh it was a, a british news it was the the daily mail so oh I think that's just... hilarious that's a that's a joke. <laughs> that's funny i mean it's kind of like saying she's deserve so much more all this time you know <laughs> well i think this is like her 10th grammy or 30th grammy or something i don't know she's maybe not her true. first award no 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 but, but she's not but she's she's not talked about in the same breath as a lot of people who have many more like public like public accolades you know so i don't know right that's a funny that's well a funny not recently i guess but i don't know it was 
what was it? It was <laughs> shock. Here's the headline: Shock as unknown blues singer beats Beyonce, Adele, and Taylor Swift to ring song to win Song of the Year award at Grammys. That's... And it's Bonnie Raitt. So you know, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's funny. And and she had a very shocked face in the picture. She, I guess, she did not expect to win. Wow. Yeah, and I don't. I would have to. I don't know which. <laughs> other songs were up so that's interesting no me neither but i you know i didn't even know bonnie Raitt had an album out last year so now i have to go get it but (laughs) and so bonnie Raitt is definitely blues and rock oh yeah those are genres that i don't know that and she kind of sometimes touches the venn diagram of country okay yeah that was another genre that i I never talk about because in general i hate it But there are performers in that genre. I mean, like Dolly Parton, I like, and, you know, she's, she does, she's a songwriter and, but, you know, the typical country music about, you know, a truck, <laughs> about trucks or, or, Mama, you know, women prison. stealing your man and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and prison. It's like, I'm not really interested in that. So, yeah, I find that. I can talk a little bit about country genres, and it's definitely not my forte either, but old school country I can get into. There's something like authentic and sort of raw about it that I like. So if you're going back to like Hank Hank Williams. Oh, kind of sound. Nah, I like the stuff that, that I like folk music that has eventually become, because of production and everything, has become country. Okay. You know, you know, but I guess most of it's kind of blues based at some, you know, if, if we're doing the family tree, mm-hmm. you know, blues has, you know, blues is like the grandfather of pretty much all modern American music. At some point, you can trace everything back to the blues, like to the, to, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah lemon blues like the blues of the turn of the 19th century and and uh you know blind lemon um, blues i like that i i i, I know you know I it was totally know what you mean when you say that it's so funny but yeah yeah no I, that's true and yeah like old country outlaw country i kind of like when it gets to the super slick nashville sound that's what yeah. i yeah don't yeah exactly quite understand it as much you know i mean i understand it it's it's as a songwriter it would be an interesting skill to be able to craft songs like it but i but it's not my cup of tea particularly yeah i mean there was i wrote i wrote a song that could very easily be produced as a country song i don't want to produce it as a country song but i mean it's honestly if the topic is right for country mm-hmm. and the structure you know because it, it's about it was basically about about a guy who i was really in love with and and he dumped me and and then and then eventually you know because his his line when he was dumping me was i'm not good enough for you mm. and 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 basically the song was you know when you told me you weren't good enough for me well you were right Mm-hmm. that's that's the whole point of the song so right right well so um, that's the kind of thing that's the kind of thing i would like to do like right sometimes you do come up with a song that's not in your voice but a country artist could do it amazingly <laughs> you know what i mean like that's uh-huh i like that kind of writing in fact i'm interested in the there is a nashville 
Songwriters Association that someone recently mentioned to me that I might want to check out in one of their meetings. And I want to see what, what they talk about. Like, are they, uh, is it really about country music or is it about, because Nashville is a music city, but all kinds of music yeah. happens there, you know? So I'm yeah. wondering if other styles are included or welcome or whatever, but it's, it'll be an interesting, I'm going to listen, sit in on it and see what, see what it is. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's exciting. Music is exciting to me again. And it hasn't been in a while, and it feels wonderful. Well, that's cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway. Um, yeah. If yeah. there were no more I, questions, I... class is dismissed for today. <laughs> 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 but I'm happy to talk about If you have a genre question, I'm happy to dive into it anytime. Excellent. Thank you. I will, I will hit you up for that, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm back with Kurt Esslinger, and he he just name-checked our We Should Be Recording This segment <laughs> because we started to talk again about you know, the, the Korean War situation, and he started saying something, and he was like, wait a minute, we should be recording this. And so, yes, we, we should. So you were about to tell me about the opinions of Donald Trump in Korea. Yeah. Yeah, tell me more. I mean, it's wild, right? So, you know, you definitely have the conservative right wing, like almost like nationalist and even Christian nationalist group who are like Trump is Trump was everything. He was the best thing for the U.S. And and that's great. But you also have uh, progressive Koreans, you know, who may not who who may not fully believe in that the the sort of Donald Trump is a savior rhetoric, but also but in a practical way saw d the presidency of Donald Trump in the US as a as a chance an opportunity in the sense that both republicans and democrats throughout korea's history have only supported right wing for example military dictatorship powers in south korea and have refused to follow the the progressive whenever the minjudang the democratic party in south korea whenever they win and try to create opportunities for dialogue and building mutual un understanding with North Korea, even Democrats in the U.S. come in and say, nope, nope, we need to stop this and let's block it all and, and make sure that it falls apart so that we can go back to us being the good guys and, and teaching those bad guys a lesson. So Trump came in and progressive South Koreans were also like, you know what? He's crazy, but maybe he's crazy enough to change this U.S. policy and assumptions that hostility is the only way to do it. And then in 2017, it was like, oh, crap, no, he's going with hostility. And there was the fire and fury stuff, the threats. And like, uh, I will, and he gave the speech in the U.N. You know, it's I will we will totally destroy you. And it's like, that's that's a human rights violation that, you know, that. So it's like, OK, this is bad. We need to we need, let's push this. But then finally, Moon Jae-in made the breakthrough when when he became president. That was right after they impeached the former president, Park Geun-hye, who happened to be the daughter of one of the military dictators from before. But so she was impeached, removed. Moon Jae-in came in saying, when I become president, I'm going to create dialogue with North Korea and we're going to end all the policies of hostility. We're going to stop weapon upgrades and we're going to stop these military exer exercises where we practice invading and attacking North Korea. And we do that several times a year, every year. 
generally not good for creating an atmosphere for peace. So he came in saying he's going to do all that. And then North Korea saw that he was true to his promises and said, okay, this guy's authentic. Let's start meeting. And so they started meeting around the Olympics. And so it was like the Olympics was the chance to say, yes, we can, we can stop hostilities, talk for a little bit. And apparently that was enough for Trump to say, yeah, okay, let's, let's see what happens here. You know, his, his just crazy enough to, to tell every, all, all the uh, other hawks in the U.S. to say, back off for a second. You know, this, let's, let's see what happens. And so then South Korea and North Korea started having their own summits, several summits where they started making agreements and then following through on those agreements, coming together to make joint projects. And so finally they brought Donald Trump, got Trump willing to join a summit in Singapore. And that was interesting watching the opposite reactions in South Korea and the U.S. Because in the U.S., there was, it seemed like this consensus of just Trump just sitting down with Kim Jong-un is this terrible thing. And it's going to legitimize the regime or legitimize the human rights violations. It will uh, legitimize the nuclear weapons program or something. And so the, him having a summit at all is is terrible, even though I've just seen several summits happening with South Korea, where Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un, who started it, you know, say, like, it's time, we need to stop this. And, and we need this, through this dialogue, this is the only way to end the perpetuation of hostility. And so when the U.S. finally sort of came in behind that, you know, it was like U.S. people could only focus on you know, the, the ways that they don't trust Trump, right? Which also, I don't fully trust Trump either myself. You know, they, even in the midst of that, you know, my, my progressive Korean friends were like, this, you know, he's the only one crazy enough. Or they, they also talked about only Nixon could go to China. You know, like a Democrat, a progressive U.S. person might not be able to make an agreement with North Korea because too much of the conservatives in the U.S. would come in and say, ah, this is because you're communist also or socialist or because you're too progressive and you don't want to protect the U.S. from a threat kind of thing. Whereas if a conservative sits down and makes an agreement with North Korea, then it's like, oh, well, we know that this conservative is going to protect the U.S. from all evil communists and things. So maybe this is going to be OK. You know, so progressives in, in Korea, were, you know, that's one thing that they were thinking. And then also. North Korea, like we have partners in North Korea, the Korean Christian Federation, they were t telling us about how they're kind of hoping that Trump was going to become president because they knew that they remembered their negotiations with Bill Clinton, where Bill Clinton was ready to launch a preemptive strike on North Korea in 1994. And they saw both Clinton and Hillary Clinton talking about how the only way to deal with North Korea is through threats and making sure that they know we can destroy them kind of thing. So they were convinced that there was no way Hillary Clinton could bring peace. So Donald Trump was the only chance. And then Donald Trump finally follows South Korea into the, the peace summit. But all my progressive friends in the U.S. were like, oh, these summits are happening only because North Korea wants a photo opportunity and we can't trust Trump, so we should not support any of the summitry, any of the meetings, not support any of these dialogues and agreements that are happening that are starting to build a chance for peace, right? So I saw the U.S. totally against it. And then in the immediate aftermath of the Singapore summit, South Korean progressives, South Koreans overwhelmingly supported 
the uh, Moon Jae-in government. So they had a, a midterm elections immediately after the Singapore summit. And Minjudang, the Democratic Party, completely swept those elections because they saw Moon Jae-in could convince the U.S. to finally join Dialogue for Peace. This is amazing. We This is what we want. And so they, they won 60% of the midterm elections, which has almost never happened for the Mid, Min, Minjudang Democratic Party in South Korea. So South Koreans were, were totally in support of those summits because they saw the ability for those that dialogue and those conversations to start to change the perpetual hostile policies, you know. But then then at the same time, I'm I also know Trump and I'm like, okay, yeah, he's crazy. <laughs> so it's an opportunity, possibly, but also you know, ironically, everyone in the U.S. was afraid. Ah, Kim Jong Un is using it for a photo opportunity, and I'm like, I kind of think Trump is the one using this for a photo opportunity. You know, like right. he's not going to be. So Moon Jae In and Kim Jong Un are sitting and and talking about like, okay, what's the content? What what are the substantive agreements that we can make that actually pull us away from war? And they were working on that and dismantling parts of the demilitarized zone and talking about disarmament and ending. You know, South Korea said, you know, we're gonna convince the U.S. to pause the military exercises. And North Korea said, okay, you pause the military exercises. We're going to completely pause our missile tests. And they did. So all those substantive things were happening. But then Trump comes in and it's like, oh, man, I really hope there's something substantive all of this. But all it turns out to be is just for him pictures and then saying, oh, it'd be really nice if I get a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, and then so, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so my, yeah, my thought about it all was that I could imagine. All right. So Trump might be crazy enough to do something that unconventional, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. you know, but he doesn't know anything. I don't believe yeah, he knows anything right. about any right. of this. Right. <laughs> so the art of the he, what deal, like, does he know how to make deals really i don't yeah i'm not even sure he knows yeah i don't think he's made very successful deals of any type it seems he knows how to manipulate you know. a deal to make it profitable for himself i think yeah yeah so what do you think was the upshot of his whole korean uh, i don't know what you'd say it escapade his love letters yeah. with Kim Jong Un, his whole thing. Well, I mean, I mean, and and appear, you know, making that appearance too. Th I mean, that's also did it do yeah. any good somehow in a weird way, or, <laughs> um, or not, or opposite? Or, right, before I get to the the you know what actually came of it, you know, like the, the, that kind of rhetoric, the whole like love letter stuff made it so much worse. Actually, like shot himself in the foot, like. Dude, you've got to convince U.S. Americans to support what you're doing, and you're coming out with this BS about like we're in love and we have love letters. That's not going to convince <laughs> anyone, man. Like no. maybe that's maybe that's like the kind of rhetoric you use to only convince your base, and your base is already convinced anyway. And so they're like, yeah, this is, Trump can do it no matter what. You know, it's like, but everybody else is who's skeptical is going to hear this shit about love letters and be like what okay this is all crap you know and and refuse to support any of it right so i'm like you know, 
you know. And, and, <laughs> so I was constantly like hearing my friends say like, well, we can't support Trump. So all this peace stuff is terrible and we can't support it. I'm like, no, no. OK, I get it. You don't trust Trump. Neither do I. But like trust Moon Jae-in, you know. Like, what if if he could be the one leading this? Like, what he's doing is all the, like, very careful, practical, gradual, step-by-step, you know, not giving away the house. We're not doing total surrender or anything. We're doing step-by-step, right? That's what he's trying to do. Support him, at least, and so long as Trump is willing to follow him, okay. But so, what we find out, you know, in the end is that he's not, not willing to follow it. Eventually, the U.S. comes back in, and especially John Bolton, was a part of all of it. You know, I, I had mentioned John Bolton earlier in this this segment, I guess, when we start just started recording because he was part of George W. Bush's administration saying, yes, we're going to preemptively invade Iraq and North Korea better watch out because we'll preemptively invade you too. So <laughs> North Korea is also watching the fact that John Bolton became national security advisor again. Or was it uh, Secretary... Wait, did he, what, what was he? Was Secretary of State? Was no, he? I can't I, remember. You know what? The Trump administration changed so many times. so yeah. much. I'm yeah. like, what did yeah. he do? Who, who was he now? Yeah. Anyway, so, I, we can look that up. Yeah, so yeah. all the promises that Trump had made in Singapore summit and all that of like saying, yes, U.S. is going to support these, these peace agreements all ended up being empty words, you know. Instead of North Korea having the empty promises, it was U.S. having the empty promises because when it came uh, a, a few months after that into 2019 is when the U.S. military started saying, you know what, we need to start the military ex- exercises again. We really need to make sure that South Korea is practicing with us how to strike North Korea. You know, And North Korea said, like, we promised to stop our missile tests so long as you're stopping your military exercises, if you start those again, we're going to start our missile tests again. And the U.S. military says, basically responded is like, well, we don't give a shit because we feel like we have to continue these things. And so they continue, they started them back up. And North Korea said, okay, we, I mean, this, is, this was our agreement, so we're sticking to our part. And that's when North Korea started its missile tests up. So every time you see a, a media article about North Korean missile tests, you know, instead of it being like, ah, North Korea is starting these provocations and we need to figure out how to react. You know, the actual truth is that those are all reactions to the U.S. decisions to go back into policies of hostility. So that promise was an empty promise. And then the Hanoi summit came where John Bolton returned and had been constantly saying, what we need to do is demand that basically North Korea surrender, like that North Korea completely unilaterally denuclearizes only North Korea disarms before we agree to anything like uh, saying the war is over or ending the war or ending hostilities. So wait until they're completely vulnerable and then we'll put down our guns, you know, like saying they have to completely dismantle everything. And until that time, we're going to maintain our guns pointed directly at their head. And this is the only good way to do it kind of thing. So that was where we returned to in the Singapore summit. And then it all fell apart. Because, you know, if you're, if, if you don't believe the Washington consensus and you think North Korea is trying to figure out how to maintain its self-determination, but also move toward peace, you know, that kind of agreement makes no sense for North Korea's perspective. And so they said, okay, well, you know, you're 
clear the U.S. is not actually interested in peace or careful, you know, gradual agreements to build peace. So there's no point in us continuing this conversation. And then and that ended a lot of the communication. But what the legacy of that, unfortunately, which was kind of my fear about Trump, even though he was crazy enough to possibly change things, was that North Korea seeing those promises broken, Kim Jong-un had actually had to do a lot of convincing people in North Korea to support his meetings with Moon Jae-in. So he, there's a lot of hardliners in North Korea that don't completely agree with Kim Jong-un's new approaches to policy. So when he came in, you know, we're, we're told in the U.S. that like, oh, Kim, Kim Jong-un has this stranglehold over all North Koreans and all North Koreans just do what he says. But that's not actually true. There is tension within North Korea and there are camps with, especially in the North Korean military, who are, will say, we will never, ever be able to trust the U.S. The only way to deal with the U.S. is through hostility, which oh, is this ironic mirror to the, the consensus in the U.S., right? So... There's hardliners within North Korea that Kim Jong-un had to convince to support him going into these summits because there, there are some North Koreans who did not agree with him participating in the summits because they were saying the U.S. is just using this as a photo opportunity, you know, and the U.S. promises are all going to be empty and the only way we can deal with them is through hostile means. And that's this kind of irony mirroring of, of what is the Washington consensus in the U.S., and so the Singapore summit happens and sure enough, the U.S. goes straight back to its, you know, North Korea alone must unilaterally denuclearize and we're not going to change any of our hostile policies. No change at all in sanctions, no change in this, no change in that until the U North Korea completely denuclearizes. So Kim Jong-un had to go back and, and deal with the extremists in North Korea who were like, we told you so, you know. We said it was empty promises. You, we were supporting you, and and now it turns out that you were wrong. And so now it's a whole lot harder for Kim Jong Un to get support in North Korea for further conversations with the U.S. because the U.S. has proved itself to be full of empty promises in that sense. Wow. So, <laughs> I mean, it's weird to think of Trump if affecting well he did a lot of damage in foreign policy mm -hmm. overall this is what i think mm -hmm. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. but the fact that something almost positive happened for a minute right. or something very positive almost happened i guess you could say yeah or at least it you know was it, it was a i i hit glimmer for a minute is uh interesting yeah yeah i mean i, was, I wow. so i would go back and i'm i would have to wonder like is that would it have been better to have not even given that hope, you know, and to give the hope and then yeah. take it away? That might have done more damage and make it harder now. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for that <laughs> That whole extra segment. Yeah. Yeah. We needed to hear about that. <laughs> right, right. You. Yeah, I was imagining. I was like, oh, I wonder if Trump will come up in that interview because that'll be pretty interesting, especially all the stuff that's going on now with him being indicted and what other indictments are coming down the line and is he going to win the Republican primary and good Lord, what happens if... There's so much. It's just so much all the time. Oh, boy. Yeah. That It's hard to even keep track of all of his various lawsuits and indictments and right. it's, it's insane right now <laughs> right. you know yeah yeah so we'll see
Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm really glad that we got to bring such a long and complex conversation with Kurt Esslinger about Korea. You know, we had really quite a long show for the last episode, and this one, we just had more information that we didn't want to leave out. And so I'm really glad that we got to hear stuff that we didn't normally, you really don't hear much about. Indeed. I, yeah. I, I had no idea. It was like I was listening to the, the first half of the first set section of the interview with like my jaw hanging on the floor because it had dropped and 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 it actually gave a whole lot more context to what was going on during the trump years because that was you know the way the way we heard about it with our new our news and it was a very it wasn't the same no, you know? no. And it really does remind me to seek even beyond what we think of the, is the alternative news that we that are our normal go tos, you know, to yeah. really try to hear more international news. And so that yeah. was really great. But there was one outstanding question in the conversation you just heard, and that was what was John Bolton's role in the Trump administration? And I couldn't put place the words <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> But he was Trump's national security advisor for 17 months. So that is what he did. Yes. So you got questions? We got answers, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and today's question is from an anonymous source because I didn't write it down. <laughs> um, and what is a widely accepted belief that needs to be dead and buried? Hmm. I had, there's so many. <laughs> there there are, are a lot of them. I think socialism is bad. <laughs> is, <laughs> is the one that I would like to see dead and buried because, because people who, who decide socialism is bad do not understand what socialism is. They have a, a the wrong idea, much like how people think things are going in Korea. <laughs> in both of the Koreas, you know, that socialism is is not communism. Socialism and communism are not synonyms for each other. They are two completely different things. I mean, there are similarities, but socialism is the government taking <laughs> taking the social programs and distributing them to everybody. It is it is roads that we don't have to pay tolls for it is medicare it is you know the power grid the highway system buses trains you know all <laughs> it's stuff that's not privately owned it's owned by the you know the collective like all of us and it you're uses, using all those i i know pinko. I'm using all those, <laughs> that's it, it, but that's what it, the misapprehension about socialism or exactly. the mis the mis de, misdefining I don't know the un the, the wrongly defined word they're defining it wrong and yeah. that needs to die <laughs> right and 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 I'm jokingly I was said that jokingly because like yes. also using those terms as dirty words 
Yes. Uh, it, you know, that's what it is. It's became it's become like a toxic term and it's Yeah, and freedom. Not, freedom. <laughs> yes. Freedom isn't a dirty word, damn it. Freedom, patriot, all these terms that are now, yeah, something yeah. else. Okay. Yeah. So that's a good one. And <laughs> it makes me think that the the thing that I think needs to go is the idea that bisexual is is transphobic. Ah. Oh. Yes, thank you. I I I uh I was didn't... in what I felt was a pretty safe kind of not not that I'm looking for safe spaces, but you know what I mean. I was in a conversation <laughs> um online that felt really comfortable and interesting and everything and then it sort of broke out into this whole thing like, you know, how transphobic by people are because it means that you only you're only attracted to two genders the uh -huh. two cisgender you know men and women and all these things and and, and I kind of broke into say listen I, I I just want to say that I've been part of this community for a very long time and that it never meant that <laughs> but I kind of got shouted out of pretty quickly like people were like well you know as a trans person I, I definitely trust someone who says they're pansexual a lot more than someone who says they're bisexual and you know I can't say what ah. some, what someone should prefer or trust but I wasn't in terms of like hearing that that term has not always meant something exclusionary was not received so it was a little bit frustrating it was a lot frustrating sigh yeah That's a, yeah exactly I had another one, but it wasn't as so now they're as that. now they're basically saying that bi and pan are not synonymous. Right. I can accept that maybe there's a there's shades of difference, but it's not to me. They're not extremely different. It's in, you know, it's just different terms, maybe for different generations. Somewhat, well, that's but... kind of what it is. It's it's I guess pansexual is more. Um grammatically correct it yes it's consciously dating that openness whereas bisexual i mean the word was formed before we had the other right. words for things i guess you could say you know right. but well, no, it it was it bi was starting to be used after you know the nazis destroyed all of their the research done in germany about sexuality and transsexuality and all of that and and maybe if that information made it past 1942 then when people in america were coming up for terms for this kind of sexuality you know did kinsey coin the bisexual i mean where did that word come from botany but <laughs> that, that's this is another whole conversation okay okay <laughs> All right, but uh, we will be anyway. talking about this on Patreon later this year. Probably, <laughs> <laughs> probably for sure. Yes. Oh, and the other thing is that people of of differing genders can't be friends. That's the other thing. What? And typically in 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 standard oh I binary see, yeah. language, people say you know men and women can't actually be friends. And that's oh right because that's stupid because because of of there's always the sex they're going under. Right, right. That you can't you can't have an asexual friendship with somebody of another gender, which is crap. Yeah, that's yeah, it's bunk. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Anyway. So, so next show. 
Yes. Who do we have for, who are we interviewing for our next show? Uh, we have a mystery guest. <laughs> oh, okay. But you're going to talk about black punk, which is really cool. So I wanna, yes. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, that that that's that's been a fun so, exploration for sure. So yeah, I will, that will be my awesome. Uh, my why is this awesome? <laughs> yes. Anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs> and you can find me on Facebook at Robin Renee Fan on Instagram at Robin Renee Music, and on Twitter at Spirit Rock Sexy. I'm also on Discord as Andrew Genus and. My eventually my website will be updated this week, I swear. And there you can go there and see all the things that exciting, I do. exciting. <laughs> yes, it, that's uh, your long overdue website update, which I'm like five years behind on. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm very I am very impressed and proud of you for actually updating your website. So yay. <laughs> And I'm Wendy Sheridan, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Wendy Cards, on Twitter at Wendy Designs, and on Etsy at Wendy Cards with a Z. And remember, you can always reach out to us on social media at Leftscape. And please send us your questions, and we might answer it on an upcoming show. So until next time, be well. It's time to end the Korean War. <laughs> yes, it is. And. Keep left. Keep left. You've been listening to the Leftscape Podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Ariel Sheridan. Web hosting by InMotion. Remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash Leftscape. Thanks for listening. <laughs>